Hi, I'm Andrew. I'm Kirsten. And this is Most Foul. Hello, listeners, and hello, Kirsten. Yes, episode 42. Now, I don't know about you, but I am really hoping to live in precedented time sometime soon. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I mean, today sucks balls and not in a good way. Yeah, we're going to try to keep it lighter, looser, a little behind the scenes. The Supreme Court decision of the official decision uh, ending Roe v. Wade was yesterday for us. Mm-hmm. Ugh. Uh, we're very current in terms of when we record versus when you listen, at yeah. least for right now. Yep. And yeah, fuck that. Fuck that. Yeah, we're experiencing it all with you right now. And it's gross. It's, you know, I'm so dumb. I'm so dumb. And sometimes I'm like, how can I be so smart in some ways and so absolutely dumb in others? And that is everyone is saying it's going to happen. It's going to happen. And there's still a part of me that's like, no, no, it's not going to happen. It can't happen. That's crazy. It will never happen. And then it happens. Like, And you could name the thing. This is just one in now a pretty long line of things. Mm-hmm. And I just never learn, which is probably good for my mental health because I'm able to believe fantasy ideas when I need to sometimes. But ugh. I go the other way <laughs> in that I'm already like, OK, so when they make being gay illegal, I wonder what countries will take queer refugees. Yes, yes. So I go into fantasy, but into the darker abyss of, well, of course this will happen. They're evil and they get what they want. So what's my next move? (laughs) Because this is a certainty that will happen. So, I mean, I'm basically just you fast forward 15 years, right? Because I invented, I'm going to leave this country if, you know, like that has been a thing now for how many past elections but like i invented that i should have trademarked that and bought the url in (laughs) 2000 or even trying to think like 90 yeah 2000 2000 was the first like anyway i've memories yeah i mean we were talking off pod last night though and it's like where the fuck will we go? Like, we're literally trapped here. And I mean, don't get me wrong. I'm not saying like, oh, gosh, us white Americans have it so hard. But like, we're trapped here until someone starts taking refugees for different oppressed peoples. Um, Yeah, that's I'm thinking it'll be refugee status and not easy immigration expat lifestyle but what about all these european countries that are just getting older and older and they need an infusion of like human capital i mean well it can happen i mean i there's a like pretty low salary requirement to be able to move to portugal right now i think you just have to prove it's somewhere between 1500 or 2000 dollars a month in income so, so if you, you can, had like, a job, tables. 
Well, no, like from here. So like if you had to work oh, from home. Oh, 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 gotcha, gotcha, gotcha. That also allowed you to live overseas, mm. which I currently do not. But mm-hmm. if you did have that, like all you have to do is be able to prove your monthly income. Mm-hmm. And it's it's not that high compared to American cost of living mm. that you could in theory go to Portugal that way. Hmm. Interesting. Which I was thinking about retirement as well. Yeah, like you need to subscribe to us. We need to get our store online so you could buy merch. <laughs> like we need you to make most foul pot a full-time job for us so we could do this anywhere. Yes, and then we'll tour and we'll <laughs> hold fun events. And... But not in fucking Texas. If this was my full-time job and I got to do only this, like, oh. What a joy. <laughs> Plus, I we mean, could probably go back to doing, like, actual research and, like, writing scripts and things that we did before. This is still the joy with a full-time job. I know, right? It is such a weird thing. Can I just say that for a minute? It's really weird to get a lot of personal joy and fulfillment out of something like this. Who would have guessed? <laughs> And it's where to turn. Oh, life is funny. Listener, we did have a discussion that we don't want to talk more about all of the bad. (laughs) And that, uh, you know, we listen to podcasts too. Uh, If the pandemic taught me anything, it's that I actually can't stand that the TV shows are, I'm going for escapism or acknowledging the pandemic. Right. Yeah. We're going to do the Hollywood thing where we just pretend like... The Supreme Court decision is not a thing. So hopefully you know where we stand in support of abortion access for the whole world. Mm -hmm. We're talking about America right now, but it's a fundamental human right. Mm -hmm. That's our stance. And we were also chatting off pod about like divesting, actually taking the uncomfortable steps of divesting some of our services and things we subscribe to from companies that are donating to these politicians and making a more tangible choice in that way as well absolutely But outside of that we also thought maybe some self-care things and things that are self-soothing to us and i just keep watching top chef (laughs) it's all i can do Yeah, I mean, it's important. And like, to be clear, we're not going to not talk about the decision because we don't want to be controversial. That's not it at all. We just recognize that people listen to podcasts for some degree of escapism. Also, I want to acknowledge for myself, I'm not a political pundit, you know, so I don't know the ins and outs of decisions. And I don't know that I can offer you really any kind of intelligent um, commentary on what's happening beyond just fuck everyone. Yes, but also <laughs> fuck all of them. Yes, fuck all of them. <laughs> We're fired up, y'all. We are, but we have cases today and self-care. We've got self-care, Top Chef. Mine has been a little app, a little game called Wordle. No, that's not it. Off. No, 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 I'm wrong. Wordle, <laughs> Wordscape. Yes. Wordscape, no. Wordscape is so like January 2020. My new one is, and I can't... Okay, I got my W words confused. It's Wudoku. Oh, I get ads for Wudoku, but I've never... I highly recommend it. It's super soothing. And a little pro tip, 
if you turn your phone in airplane mode, you get the double benefit of not getting ads in the app and no one can reach you on your phone. So mm. it's like a win-win self-care. <laughs> You're on an island of virtual di wooden blocks. Mine has been sword it 3d oh yeah my my mom has that one <laughs> also i don't go airplane mode i just close the app every time i win a puzzle and then reopen <laughs> the app to avoid the commercials yeah so we we feel you everyone we're we're there with you we're just trying to cope and also to make the point there's no shame in some coping you know like you have to take care of yourself, do the work and take care of yourself so that you can live to fight another day. Not about this at all, but I was having an extremely similar conversation this week with my sister mm. and it was like, well, and my brother actually, it's come up in a lot of different ways, but it's like stress is literally a killer, mm -hmm. a body destroyer. So like, of course, we're in very stressful times in a million ways. But that self-care is, like, truly important. Like, doing the work also includes doing the work of caring for yourself because stress destroys the body. Right. And if that's all you hold at all times, it, it's really bad. And if you're someone who is has a lower income or is a carer for a parent or a child with special needs, or you're someone who has to work three jobs, like give yourself a break. You know, you cannot change the world by driving yourself into the ground. If the most that you can do is like and share and sign petitions online, like that is totally cool. And I think that's important because it's our system, our capitalist system that grinds people into the ground economically and makes it impossible for huge chunks of people to do things. And so whatever you have to do, you do it. And, you know, maybe for a while you leave the fight to someone else who has a bit more um, bandwidth in their life. Yeah. A lot of times the most helpful things people can do is actually talk to people in their immediate network mm -hmm, mm -hmm. like there's there's a lot of grandstanding especially on social media but it's like sometimes having the uncomfortable conversation with your mother mm -hmm. yeah is a more powerful outlet for change than screaming into the void on twitter yeah that's true and i just want to call out to all the white women out there and I'm I'm going to call you in into this conversation that you know it's up to us we have to make a huge change you know for most white women not all most white women I think live with the knowledge that if they really needed an abortion they would have access to it regardless of what state they live in or the state of Roe v Wade and that's not okay. We we have to vote for all women. And white women have let this country down, I think, a lot in the last 10 years, 15, 20, whatever. Yeah. The speaking up, it's, ugh, it's so much. I know. And we said we weren't going to talk about it, but <laughs> <laughs> this is us not talking about it. <laughs> Honestly, though, this is us not talking about it. <laughs> Self-soothing. I was trying to think of self-soothing. I don't know that I've 
I mean, I've watched a lot of Top Chef. Mm-hmm. Oh, you know what? I just started watching, which is not new, but I just started watching Barry a little while Ooh. ago. And that's kind of a nice, like, it's so dark, it feels really appropriate <laughs> in some ways. So maybe just, I don't know, everybody's got their things. Yeah, TVs, podcasts, tasty food, mm-hmm. whatever that might be. Long walks on the beach. Long sits in the air conditioning. <laughs> like, what's uh, What else have I been doing? A thousand percent. I took my kids to the <laughs> pool this morning, and I'm just like, if I get in the pool, I have to be in direct sunlight. If I sit here in the shade with no breeze, it's just stifling. <laughs> there is no relief except to go home. And that's beautiful. That's beautiful sometimes. It is. I was telling you before, I love the pool because now my kids are old enough to go in on their own, even though they like to bitch and moan about it. But they are technically old enough to just go in on their own and they can swim and yada, yada. So it feels like I'm doing something. I'm not inside the house and yet I'm in repose (laughs) doing nothing. (laughs) So it's kind of that perfect combination of hey, look, I'm doing something, and yet I'm not doing anything. Which, like you said, is perfect. It's a perfect combination. (laughs) Except maybe if it's a little bit cooler. Yeah, a little bit cooler or more breezy. Yeah. But I'm not above buying my kids' affections with ring pops and, (laughs) you know, wet, slippy slides. I desperately wanted ring pops as a child. (laughs) I've totally like let it go all the way. So they have four dollars every week to spend at the snack bar. And if they oh, spend really it cute though. All on ring pops, that's totally there. That's totally within their um rights now. I'm like, well, now's the time to teach them about smart choices if they want to just have ring pops, like okay. Yeah. I mean, but ring pops I mean, I hate to say fine, like on the chemical side, but it's like in moderation, it's also just fine. Yeah. I mean, you can only... I don't know only... about giant pixie sticks, which is what I would go for as a child at the concession stand, which is just like, I don't know, two cups of sugar. Yeah, they don't have those. And ring pops, you can only... Nowadays, you can only get eight ring pops with $4. So, you know, eight ring pops a week for, you know, <laughs> it's, only, it's only 10 weeks of the summer, so... That seems I do that math, except with how much am I willing to leave in the ice cream container every time? Oh, yeah. And and you get to a point where it's like, mm, should I just eat this now or is it worth saving? It's like, well, I don't even want it all that much now, but it's so little. I, I won't be happy enough with it next time. So I should just force feed myself. <laughs> Human psychology is so weird. Yes. Speaking of psychology... <laughs> Yes. And bad things. So we picked this case ahead of time. Mm -hmm. It's kind of a two-parter, two cases for the price of one. I don't even know what I'm saying. Sorry, I apologize. (laughs) (laughs) Strike it from the record. (laughs) But it is kind of like two cases that merge Mm -hmm. into one story. Yeah, and really, yeah, it's a strange one. And the weird happenstance of our pod 
podcast that just keeps happening again and again is that we pick something a month out and then it's weirdly relevant. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I think our kicking us off into the cases is unfortunately weirdly relevant to the time. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So would you like to hear the story of Christine Collins? Mm-hmm. Absolutely. I'm excited. And I'm going into this one with very little knowledge because I'm excited to hear you tell it. Oh, I'm excited to hear that from you. <laughs> so this is an unbelievably true story. So it's Christine Collins and her lifelong search for her missing son, Walter. Mm-hmm. If you're like Kirsten and don't know this story, strap yourself in for a wild ride. Mm-hmm. <laughs> So Christine was born in 1888, and when she was 40, so March 10th, 1928, her life changed forever. On that day, she gave her nine-year-old son, Walter, a dime to go to the movie theater close to their house. Tragically, he never came home. Mm. According to the LA Times, Angelinos rallied behind Christine and her missing boy, while police dragged Lincoln Park Lake and launched a national campaign to find Walter. It's suspected that the city was so invested because it was just three months after a 12-year-old girl had been kidnapped, held for ransom, and dismembered by psychopath William the Fox Hickman before Mm -hmm. he was arrested. So that was just three months past between this horrific, horrific thing and Walter's disappearance. So tips about Walter's location came from all over. He was allegedly spotted as far north as San Francisco and Oakland. One reported sighting was at a Glendale gas station in the backseat of a car wrapped in newspaper with only his head showing. Hmm. At that time, the station owner described the driver as, quote, a foreign-looking man, probably an Italian, Hmm. end quote. So... 1920s we're Mm. talking about just to remember interestingly tangentially walter's father walter j.s collins was serving time in prison for robbery and believed that former inmates out for revenge against him might have kidnapped his son Mm. though there were no witnesses and no proof that that occurred so essentially the police had a ton of leads that were all dead ends Mm. then five months after going missing the story takes a sharp turn. A boy appeared in DeKalb, Illinois, claiming to be Walter. Mm. Christine paid $70 for his transportation from Illinois back to California, which, you know, inflation, that would be almost $1,200 mm-hmm. today. So wow. A decent chunk of money. I mean, I don't think a lot of us have $1,200 to just throw around. Right. The boy who showed up resembled Walter... But Christine insisted it was not her son. Mm. And the LAPD did what you'd expect them to do, which is they refused to believe Christine. They moved to close the case and suggested that she take him home and, quote, try the boy out, end quote. What? What? I mean, it's not like this is 10 years later and the child could have changed a lot. I mean, in five months, you're going to know if... A kid is your child or not yeah and apparently he was really 
malnourished and the police were like well he's been through a traumatic five months it sort of looks like your son (laughs) (laughs) so try the boy out what the fuck and she did take him home and which is unfathomable to think about but she was caring for him in the meantime and she was gathering evidence So over the next three weeks, she had dental records pulled for her son, examined with this boy, which, of course, did not match. Her son had fillings. This boy had never been to a dentist. Oh, my God. So she took the dental records to the LAPD, along with a lot of people who agreed that the boy wasn't Walter. So in the face of this evidence, LAPD Captain J.J. Jones, who was investigating the kidnapping, did what you would expect the police to do which is refuse to believe her and he's on record saying quote what are you trying to do make fools out of all of us or are you trying to shirk your duty as a mother and have the state provide for your son you are the most cruel hearted woman that i've ever known you are a fool end quote oh my god yes Like, rage. I feel rage bubbling in my stomach. So say it with me. A cab. All cops are bastards. I mean, that one certainly was. Yeah, at least many cops. Many cops are like this. Many cops have always been like this. And otherwise, air quotes, good cops don't do shit about it. Oh, my God. I mean, with dent... Not that it should even go to the point of needing (laughs) dental records. Like, why would she pay that much money to have a kid brought who she just didn't... Like, if she didn't want her kid, she would have not paid to have the kid brought, right? Like... Yeah. (laughs) it None of it makes any sense. And tons of people who agreed. I think the LA Times used the word, like, a gang of people. <laughs> like, so many people were like, this isn't Walter. Oh, my God. Plus the dental record. So, in spite of the evidence, Jones, rather than face the negative publicity, refused to take Christine's insistence seriously. And instead, he did what any man in power, it seems like, would do to a woman uh, in America. He had her committed to the Los Angeles County General Hospital Psychiatric Ward under Code 12 internment, a code to commit someone who is, quote, deemed difficult or an inconvenience, end quote. What? Yes. That was a thing? It is so fucked up. The systems are built for straight white men. Oh, my God. That, that, wow. Wow. This is what I meant about, uh, I mean, it's not the exact same issue, but like this, this part of the story really connects with American politics and political ideology today. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, my God. I mean, it's like, kind of the same type of people, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, that's a type of person who cares about, I don't know what, how things look more than the truth and... Women are inconvenient. Because the LAPD had already had some other bad press and then that uh, missing and dismembered girl and... But I mean, what's more bad press than conspiring to commit a perfectly healthy, rational woman? Yeah, but they're like, well, we can just get rid of her. 
everybody cared about this case. It was national news. So we've solved it. We're great. We're done. And if we just throw her in a psych ward, no one's ever going to follow up. Jesus. So Christine was held against her will in the psych ward, treated inhumanely, fell victim to different types of medicine to try to, air quote, bring her back to her senses, Ugh. and for her to admit that the boy was her son. Crazy. So while, yeah, while this was happening, a handwriting expert determined that the boy's handwriting samples didn't match Walter's. <laughs> I mean, this he didn't have fillings. dental. <laughs> he didn't have fillings. How did he magically, like, get teeth that didn't have fillings? Yeah. So I'm pretty sure this handwriting expert was from the city or the police, and so they took it more seriously. So they questioned him, and he confessed that he was actually 12-year-old Arthur Hutchins of Iowa. Oh, my God. According to him, after his mother died, he'd gone to live an isolated life with his malicious father and stepmother. He ran away hitchhiking around the country and working odd jobs. When he stopped at an Illinois roadside cafe, Arthur said he listened to a diner tell him how much he resembled the kidnapped boy from Los Angeles, whose picture had appeared in the newspapers nationwide. So Arthur jumped at this opportunity to see Hollywood turned himself into authorities and carried out the charade by assuming the identity of Walter. So finally having this information, life must have gotten better for Christine. But it didn't really. She spent 10 full days in the psych ward. She was released after Arthur's confession. Being a badass, she filed a false imprisonment complaint against the city, police chief James Davis, and Captain Jones. More than a thousand outraged Angelinos packed the council chambers and the newly opened city hall to hear the testimony, to hear the police in their defense against Collins' ac- accusations. And the crowd was furious. Yeah. They were in an uproar. According to an LA Times article, broken microphones prohibited them from clearly hearing all of the witnesses. Bystanders kept yelling louder, louder, as the family dentist testified that the real Walter had several fillings. The boy claiming to be Walter had never seen a dentist, didn't have any dental work done. In addition to the trials, Christine told her story to the police commission, which refused to discipline Jones. And then they had to go to a grand jury before finally going to court. Jones was eventually temporarily suspended but the complaint against the city and the police chief was dismissed. Oh, my God. But that didn't stop Christine from going after him. More than two years and two trials later, a judge finally awarded Christine $10,800, which would be almost 200000 today. I mean, still and, so little compared yeah. to what she suffered. Yeah. And that money was ordered to come from Captain Jones. Mm-hmm. Christine planned to use that money to continue looking for her son, but Jones never paid. He was, of course, reinstated to the LAPD four months after being suspended, as cops are today. Right. And he was probably suspended with pay. Probably, yeah. And he claimed to just be consistently broke to avoid payment. I have an idea. Just take his pension. Yeah. Yeah. Christine took him to court again and again and again and again, but never got money from him. Oh, my God. Despite all of it, she continued her search for Walter. Her new daily routine was to go to work, go home, 
and hoped to hear about Walter. Mm. Unfortunately, the two were never reunited. So what actually might have happened to him to get to that and to sort of understand that side, Kirsten's going to tell us the story of the Wineville Chicken Coop murders Mm -hmm. and how these two cases intersect. Yeah. Oh, my God. That is insane. Especially when you know what happens, which is where I come in, unfortunately. The 1920s were just a brutal time to be a child. Yeah, I especially in the true crime world, but just in general. And, and then thinking about going into the Depression, it's like, it's almost unthinkable compared to how we live and how we keep children and interact with children in 2022 America. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's almost like, I hate to make this comparison, but it's almost like the way we treat pets now. Kind of. It it just wasn't, it was all just different, and I don't know why, but yeah, the systems, the society, everything was just like, meh, meh. <laughs> My God. Well, around this same time, we're... In the 1920s, we are going to talk about another boy, a boy named Gordon Stewart Northcott. And he was born in 1906, so a little bit before this time. And he was born in Canada, um, and he kind of spent his early years in British Columbia. In 1924, he and his mother and father moved from Canada to Los Angeles. So he would have been about 18 at that time. So essentially an adult, especially back then. And they had gone just for kind of greener pastures. But Stuart, as he was known, had a much older sister. So this was, I think, pretty common in that time, too, in families to have multiple kids over kind of a wide range. So he had a sister who was in her 30s by that time and had children, some of whom were entering the teenage years as well. So the sister and her family stayed back in Canada, but Stuart and his parents went to LA and they were established kind of just living normal life. And Stuart developed around that time kind of a strange obsession with a neighbor boy who lived in their neighborhood and he spent a lot of time with the boy and I think some people noticed but you know the family seemed like a normal kind of upstanding family so nothing was really done about it and I think the boy liked the attention and you know the time spent with this older boy who had a car and could do things but one day I think either at Stuart's house or in the neighbor's yard outside somewhere, Stuart essentially tries to assault the boy. The boy was about 15. So Mm -hmm. it wasn't a violent assault. It was kind of trying to woo him or trying to turn their friendship into something more. And the boy was just not into it. And repulsed by the whole thing he you know said no he kind of ran away and then he went and immediately told his parents Mm -hmm. 
So at that time, then the parents notify the police and police are sent to Stewart's house. They talk to Stewart. They talk to his parents. And they all say, well, this is ridiculous. Stewart is a good boy. He would never do anything like this. Yada, yada, yada. He has no history of any kind of trouble. And so the police kind of do nothing from there. Mm-hmm. So one thing to know at this point about the case and the family dynamic is that, you know, the good old nugget about the overbearing mom, which is kind of a trope, seems to be be absolutely the case here. So she doted on Stuart. She gave him everything he wanted. He was very spoiled and essentially kind of ignored the husband. The husband didn't have a whole lot of agency in the marriage or in the family. And that's really important to know because when the police came, it was essentially the mom, Louise, who was like, my son would never do this. And and they kind of you know, went away. Mm -hmm. Shortly after this experience, which a lot of people think was kind of a turning point for him, he had had these kind of urges, these attraction to younger boys, but going through this experience, he learned that he was going to have to be kind of um, underhanded about it, I guess. He couldn't just openly do things in this way. So he gave it a little thought. He was, you know, still having obsessive thoughts. He goes at this point to his father and asks his father to buy him a farm. Um, What he's determined that he really needs to pursue his interests in young boys is a really out-of-the-way place. Yeah. So... Previous to this, he had had no interest in farming. He was kind of a dandy in the sense that, you know, he dressed nicely and he had a convertible car and um, not someone that you would look at and be like, oh, yeah, he should have, you know, a farm out in like the middle of nowhere, Dust Bowl, California. Yeah. But I think through the persuasion of the mom, they did just that. They bought him a chicken farm in Wineville, California, which is located in Riverside, California, so east of L.A. At the time, super remote, just Mm -hmm. nothing out there but dirt and farms and nothing. So he sets up at this farm, and he's got now this huge private space that he wants, but kind of unsurprisingly, he discovers that waking up early and feeding chickens and collecting eggs and all of the things that are required to manage a farm are not really that interesting to him. Yes. (laughs) Which you and I both know, having spent time on a farm, it's not all glamour and rainbows. Oh, it's not all glamour? It's not all glamour. Um, Apparently, he, you know, didn't like cleaning out chicken coops and whatnot. I also hated that. I mean, the only similarities is the (laughs) we started into the chicken coop. I'm deathly afraid of chickens. I have a chicken story, which I think I've told you probably multiple times, but that's a story for another time. (laughs) Well, my chicken story is that my brother, I'm the youngest, locked me in the chicken coop. Oh, my God. And then they, like, pecked me, and I was crying, 
And so I also don't like chickens. Oh my God, we are the same person. My chicken story is that we had this really ornery rooster on the farm. And of course it was the 70s. So I was allowed to just like roam like Uh alone, even though I was like three. And so I'm out roaming alone and the rooster started chasing me. And my parents were like 100 yards away and could not get to me in time. And so the story is this, that my parents are hollering from, you know, a football field away. Run, 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 Kirsten. And I'm running, I'm running, like screaming, crying. And then suddenly I stop. I lean down and I grab a board and I turn around and I just wail on the rooster. (laughs) (laughs) And I didn't kill the rooster, but apparently it was never the same again. Well. You were under attack. I was under attack. I prevailed, but I still have a fear of chickens to this day. (laughs) Yeah, I'm not a fan. I like to eat them. I do like to eat them, too. (laughs) Well, Stuart was not a fan of chicken farming any more than you were or I was. So because he was a monster, he hatched a plan of how to kind of solve both of his issues with one fell swoop. So he reached out to his sister in Canada and he invited his nephew, who was a teenager at the time, his name is Sanford Clark, to move to the farm, enjoy all of the wonderful liberties of the United States, and even get an American education. So Sanford came to the United States and he moved to the farm. And for a while, I think the parents were out there helping with some building projects and helping with some chicken stuff. And then pretty shortly after, the parents just went back to their home in Los Angeles. And now at this farm, this very remote farm, it's Stuart and Sanford. Yeah. Now, Sanford has no you know, kind of independent source of money. He has no car. I don't think there was a phone at the farm. So he could not have been more isolated than he was living at the farm with his with his uncle. Essentially a prisoner. Yep. Yep. Exactly. So within a couple of days, Stuart attacks his nephew. He beats him severely, and and then rapes the boy. Now, I'm not going to go into a lot of detail. This is a really grim story, but all of the accounts that I could find say that Stuart is what's called a sexual sadist. So mm-hmm. a pedophile, yes, he was a pedophile, and he enjoyed inflicting pain and suffering on other people. And so... In this kind of first instance or this first attack, which is believed to be his first, I I hate using this terminology, but his first successful attack or his first completed attack Mm -hmm. um, on a child. So within this attack, the beating was as much a part of the motivation as the rape. Mm -hmm. And so this becomes a pattern. Now... In that moment, even though Sanford is, as you said, essentially a prisoner, 
he still threatens Sanford and says, if you tell anyone, if you tell my sister, your siblings, my parent, anyone, I'll kill you. Like, it's that simple. And the boy is afraid. You know, again, he has no lifeline, no way out. If he were to run away, it's just miles and miles of nothing. No tree. Like, it's a very kind of desolate, barren landscape. No place to hide. Deserty, yeah. For those not familiar with LA and Southern California, like, these are extreme climates as well. It's not just like, oh, you'd have to walk a few miles. Right. It's like you're in the desert. Right. And and a walking individual would be visible from miles away. So, mm-hmm. you know, his threat is, I will hunt you down, I will find you, and I will kill you. And Sanford believes him, and I, I think with good reason. And so this begins an era of just pure torture and misery for Sanford. So this goes on for quite a long time. After a period of time, Stewart seems to have, like many predators do, kind of bored with Sanford, and he wanted other victims. Mm-hmm. And so what he started doing is he started roaming around in this area, you know, the desolate kind of farming area, and hunting for children. Now, at the time, agriculture was just really beginning to boom in the area, and with it, migrant workers from Mexico. And of course, a lot of these migrant workers, they worked as families. And so they had children, they brought children, and the children worked in the fields, as, as mm-hmm. most children did if they weren't from families of means. And so he would go around in his kind of flashy car, and he could definitely be charming. He would kind of talk to the boys, charm them. Um, invite them for either a ride in his car or to come to his farm on some pretense. And he did this several times. So he would kidnap, hold them against their will at the farm, torture them. And then he would, when he was kind of done with them, he would take them off and just dump them somewhere out in the wilderness and he kind of knew that because they were migrant workers maybe they didn't speak english very well most likely they weren't going to tell authorities and if they did who would believe them um and unfortunately as your part of this story demonstrated you know the lower you go down on the kind of status poll the more likely people are to not believe you so here's this kind yeah. of upstanding white man who says i didn't do anything and here's a poor immigrant child who you know if he even could explain what had happened in english didn't have a lot of social capital to be believed Mm -hmm. so again this goes on for several months and he has many victims this way i never found a single count of it i don't think there's a reliable count um But he did this pretty frequently. And Sanford was aware, but he was scared to death of his uncle. At this point, he had also Mm -hmm. been subjected to lots of torture, um, many rapes, etc. So when he came home with a boy and he would take them into the chicken coop, there was inside the barn, there was kind of a spare chicken coop area, which is how this case gets its name. And he was just scared to death. Yeah. So this goes on for a while. And about 
maybe a year to 16 months into this reign of terror. On February 1st, 1928, Stuart is doing his kind of usual um, prowling in the area, and he comes upon a boy who is described as being about 15 and really beautiful boy. And he goes up to the boy and begins talking to him and, you know, puts, puts his charming self out there. And then he starts his kind of act of trying to get him to come with him or um, get in his car. Now, this boy was older, um, probably more worldly um, and less likely to fall for his usual tricks. Mm-hmm. And the boy reacted pretty not violently in the sense of he acted out, but very strongly. You know, he rejected him. He called him names, I think, and basically told him to fuck off. Well, Stuart goes back either to his car, he leaves for a while and comes back. He finds the boy and he shoots him. And this is described as as kind of a rage killing, you know. Uh-huh. Again, because of the way his mother had raised him and doted on him, he was not used to people telling him no. So he goes back, he kills the boy, and now, you know, this is acknowledged to be his first murder. He doesn't know what to do with the body. I mean, that's kind of always the rub with these kinds of things is now you have a body, what do you do with it? Mm -hmm. Um, And so he apparently took the body and put it in his car. He went somewhere and he dismembered it to a certain extent. And then he left the body along the side of a road in someplace more remote um, and probably where he didn't feel like he had been seen. And this part is just speaks to the sadism. He kept the, the boy's head And I think partly because he wanted to prevent identification of the body for a period of time, but also because he was just a straight-up sadist. Yeah, like, I'm sure even if it wasn't a rage of the first kill, like, killing was coming no matter what. Like, he is a horrific psychopath. Yeah. And, I mean, these these cases, they always escalate, right? mm Mm-hmm. So now he kind of sees an opportunity. He can, you know, hide his crime, delay or prevent altogether identification of this child. And now he can cement total control over his nephew. Mm -hmm. So he takes the head, he puts it into a bucket and he goes home back to the farm And he walks into his nephew who's doing chores and he says, oh, I have something for you. And he's got the bucket and the bucket has a cloth over it or whatever. And the boy is like, oh, what is it? And he takes the cloth off. And according to reports, he couldn't even really tell what it was, you know. And then he tells him, like, it's a head. I killed this boy. And he essentially makes Sanford dispose of of the boy's head. Fucking nightmare. Yeah. And, you know, at this point, his torture of Sanford kind of turns into 
you are just like me. You are a monster. Like, look at what you do. But it's also, if you don't do this thing, you're next. And now mm-hmm. the boy knows without a shot. I mean, he already knew, right? That when he said he would kill him, he was serious. But now there's no fantasy to escape into that this he might suddenly not be this monster. Like, he's capable of not only murder, but decapitating a body, bringing the head. I mean, just... You know, now if he had any kind of illusions about the depth of depravity, he no longer has this. And so as instructed, he burns the head and then he's made to pulverize the skull that is remaining and then take that and like bury it over somewhere on the farm. So there are ideas about who this victim may be but it's never been proven who that boy was yeah and i mean unfortunately we've seen it in a lot of cases but especially at this time police rarely did shit Mm -hmm. it was like they're a runaway they're Mm -hmm. a runaway the end we're not we're not doing this like i mean they tried the runaway thing with walter too but christine was incredibly insistent and because right. that big case in la had just happened right. with kidnapping it was on people's minds but just forever that was right. like the police response i mean even today police only solve 50 percent of murders it was just like they're a runaway they're a runaway mm-hmm. yep and with walter you know he was nine so it's a lot easier to be like a nine-year-old would never run away but at 15 you know 14 15 Mm -hmm. like you're getting into the range of okay yeah like a lot of times those kids have run away so after this again the the psychological torture of sanford has kind of taken a shift and the emotional torture and you know again i think this is a bit of a turning point if this boy kind of pleaded for his life in any kind of way I mean, this is the ultimate thrill, the ultimate kind of feeding of that sadism and the ultimate power that these kind of psychopaths derive is having the power over someone, whether someone lives or dies. Mm -hmm. So at this point, then, you know, the murder becomes part of the whole kind of process and crime. It's not incidental or kind of provoke, you know, quote, sarcastically provoked. And so very shortly after this, just two months later, he starts escalating. Now, he's back in L.A. visiting his parents, and he's just kind of in the neighborhood. And he notices a boy who he kind of knows from the neighborhood. He had had a job for a time as a clerk in a store. And Uh this boy used to come into the store to buy groceries for his family periodically. So they weren't friendly, but he recognized the boy, and I think the boy recognized him. And so he pulls up, and he sees that the boy is playing with some kind of of pony toy or has a book or comic book about ponies. And he says to the boy, oh, would you like to come for a ride in my car and come see my pony farm? And in this way, he lures the boy away Mm -hmm. and takes him to the farm and kind of goes through his usual torture scenario. Now, the thing that is different about this is Stuart's taking a huge risk because he's near his parents' home. He doesn't have that anonymity of being out in Riverside County picking up you know, children who society at that time didn't care too much about. 
He's now picking yeah. up a boy who is known to him, who lives in the neighborhood, um, and is from a family that society deems, you know, more worthy. Yeah. And this boy happened to be Walter Collins. So at this point, Walter Collins is a captive out at the farm. And so your story now is overlaying this one. In mm-hmm. L.A., his mom is going through um, the steps that you had talked about. For five days, he is held captive in Wineville at the farm. He's locked out in the chicken coop and is tortured just constantly during that time. On the fifth day, Stuart has a, a wrench thrown into his plan. His mother shows up unexpectedly at the farm for a visit. And so, you know, some people say that leading up to this point, his parents knew they they at least knew that he was he had homosexual attraction. Mm-hmm. They knew, you know, about the neighbor. So they knew that he had attraction to underage boys. Whether they knew the extent of his depravity at that point is not totally known, but Mm -hmm. a lot of people felt like they did. And by buying him the farm, they were basically saying, well, it won't be a problem because he'll be out there. But, you know, I think that's, that's a tough one to kind of nail down. But at this point, she comes to the farm, she's visiting, and Stuart's basically acting crazy. He's going out to the chicken coop constantly, um, back and forth, back and forth. Now, he's petrified Sanford into silence. And Sanford knows very well that his grandmother like loves Stuart above all else. So mm-hmm. I don't think it probably even crossed his mind to tell her what was going on. Well, after three days of this... His mom becomes suspicious about Stuart's kind of weird behavior. Yeah. So when Stuart is in bed or is off distracted doing something, she slips out to the to the coop and she peeks inside the window and she sees Walter Collins laying asleep on a on a cot. So at this point, you might be wondering, you know, how does she react? I mean, a mother's love is one thing, but I mean, this is crazy. And of course, having lived in Los Angeles and just come from there, she knows all about his his being missing mm-hmm. because his mother had, you know, sounded the alarm and was in the press, all the things that you talked about. So she knew immediately who it was and that this was fucked beyond belief. So she storms into the house and basically attacks Stuart and is like, what the fuck have you done? This is crazy. This This ends now. This must end. So he's freaking out and she goes back to the coop and she takes an axe to get through the lock to get into the coop. And at this point, she wakes up Walter. He had been asleep and he probably thinks, oh, my God, like people are here to save me. Mm -hmm. She calls Sanford and Stuart out to the coop and she takes that axe And she strikes Walter in the head with the axe, with the sharp side of the axe. At this point, Walter is, if not dead, very close to it. Mm -hmm. But she turns and she says to Stuart and Sanford that they now must also participate in the murder so that they are all complicit in this crime. So Sanford is like 
you know, he's not been involved like this. He's known he's been a victim. Yeah. He's turned like and when I say turned a blind eye, I mean it's just an easy phrase to go to. Didn't turn a blind eye like he was in a position to do anything else, but he's never been asked to participate in this way. And of course he freaks, he refuses, and Stuart and his mom both make it very clear, like, you are next if you don't do this. And having just witnessed his grandmother drive an axe into a boy's head, he has no reason to not believe it a thousand percent. Well, yeah, because it's true. It's true. It's absolutely true. And so he strikes a blow, Stuart strikes a blow, and then Sanford is, is forced to dispose of the body go and dig a dig a grave somewhere out on the property and bury the boy Mm -hmm. so at this point everything kind of changes for sanford now he believes really truly believes all of the things that Stuart has been telling him all along that he is a monster they are the same and also now even if he ever had any fantasy or hope of escaping that doesn't even seem like a way out anymore because again, remember he's still a child himself. He doesn't know that he would not be held accountable for his involvement in that crime. If he were to go to the police. And realistically, mm -hmm. I mean, there's a world in which Stuart and the grandma could pin it all on him. Absolutely. I mean, it's not a slam dunk. I mean, we've seen cases where it can be hard to tell from the outside, you know, depending on the particulars, who was a willing participant and who wasn't in things like this. So, yeah, this crazy grandmother is mm-hmm. like a another escalation, another wild turn in this insane, horrific story. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, it's just, it's monstrous. It it seems unbelievable. It really seems unbelievable. And we're not even done with this case. But I yeah. think that we're out of time. So I want to end it here with basically, you know, if the story has a hero, Sanford being at his, probably his lowest point. And then we'll pick up next week with the rest of the case and how it came undone, how the crimes were discovered, and what becomes of all of these players. Mm -hmm. And then how those ripples go into movies, TV, radio, and has just sort of become an institutional part of American popular culture. Yeah, so many ways. Mm. Heavy one. Sorry we're not going out on a lighter note everybody we have resources this touches on a lot of horrific things we have resources in our episode notes Mm -hmm. um and yeah practice Mm -hmm. (laughs) self-care self-soothe it it might not be top chef for everyone i acknowledge that but whatever it is for (laughs) you uh take care of yourself this week and we'll be back next week with the the conclusion to this horrific horrific story absolutely we appreciate the hell out of you 100%. Please head over to Apple Podcasts and rate and review our show. It really helps us out. Plus, we'll read five-star reviews on an upcoming episode. This has been a Facts from Janet production. 